0: they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you'll never have to pay. There's a better way. Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again today from Arlington, Texas. Today with episode 491 of the Survival Podcast, it is Thursday, August the 12th, 2010, and I'm going to talk about food storage today. I'm going to kind of back up, you know, kind of throw the car in reverse and, uh, go back to way you know we talked this is stuff we talked about way in the beginning of the show, you know, four hundred episodes or more ago. Um, but I do need to go back to certain core topics once in a while and revisit them. I do try to whenever I do this, I try not to just redo a show. I think that would be boring and a waste of your time and frankly a waste of mine as well. To bring new analogies, new way to think and new new techniques and new concepts and new information, even when I revisit a topic. So that's what we're going to do today. Before that, though, uh, I want to go ahead and do the housekeeping. First housekeeping item today so that I don't forget, though, is an announcement. I asked people to call in, and I kind of fell off the wagon with asking people to call in with stories about how the Survival Podcast has changed your life. Uh, a few people did, and, and those have been put aside, but we haven't gotten enough to do show number 500 that way. I'm going to let that ride out until the end of the month. And then I'm going to go on a big push, a big campaign. What we'll do is we'll do that show for number 550, uh, similar to our first year when people called in. It's as much my fault as a lack of response because I, you know, went on vacation and, the whole thing just kind of fell through and I think I waited too long to figure out I wanted to do it for number 500 and I didn't give you guys enough time because it takes time to kind of get your thoughts together and do that. So we'll just revisit that. I'll hold on to the calls I got already that, uh, that fit and about, you know, September 1st. I'll start doing a big push on that. Uh, Next up today, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, Sawtooth Tactical. Everything you need to live that tactical lifestyle, from Maxpedition bags to Magpul magazines and accessories and everything you can think of in between, Sawtooth Tactical has it for you, man. They've got some really cool stuff, and they've got great customer service. You know, you're talking about a small company, and in a lot of ways that's good because if you have a problem, you end up talking to the owner, and that means that he doesn't have to ask Ask somebody before he fixes it for you, and he just does it. And uh, I haven't had a single complaint, I've had a lot of praise uh, come back to me on Sawtooth Tactical. Glad to have him as a sponsor. Good supporter of the show, been with us over a year now, folks. Reward that loyalty back uh, by doing business with him when you can. Next up today, gotta say the same thing, man, about the loyalty of this sponsor, ready made resources. One of our early sponsors, been with us a very long time, and they have everything you could possibly need uh, for your prepping needs, man. Ready-Made Resources is exactly what it says it is. And uh, they actually, I just talked to Bob Griswold yesterday, and uh, they're going to start dealing firearms, guys, because they just managed to, to get an FFL. So that may really expand some of the offerings that are available from Ready-Made Resources. Obviously, you would need an FFL to have something delivered to out of state. I don't know if they're going to do that via e-commerce or not yet, but uh, good to see they're working on expanding their business and their product offering. And uh, Ready-Made Resources is a great place to find things for your prepping, including stuff for long-term food storage. So uh, after today's show, you may want to check them out. Uh, next, I want to remind you guys about our gear shop or gear store. Uh, we have a lot of cool stuff, and we have a lot of cool stuff coming. But, you know, definitely stop by. I think we're out of Challenge Coins again, so we're back into the pre-orders for Challenge Coins. We have a new series of Challenge Coins that will be coming out soon. Uh, we've got all kinds of new stuff, but definitely get one of the uh, French press bugs. They're probably the coolest thing we've come up with so far. And uh, if you have a friend that's a coffee drinker that you'd like to see turn into a prepper, what a great soft sell of the prepping lifestyle by just uh, getting them one of those. Uh, last but not least, consider joining the Members Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. 20 videos by me that you can download to your PC and watch that are available nowhere else. Um, discounts to about 20 different vendors Including some really great ones From some of our sponsors uh, It's uh, it's really a good deal It really gives you a return of investment And folks, what you're actually doing Is you're supporting my show at 20 cents an episode When I first launched the show Got into it about 30 episodes People said, well, this guy's serious He's going to be around I started getting people saying, hey, let me donate uh, We'll get throw a PayPal button on there or something We'll give you a donation And help you get the show off the ground And I said, I will not take a donation And I did the show for a year Without taking a Taking any money out of it at all, a year, and uh, then I decided it was time that we could go ahead and put something together with some real value. And if you were gonna if you were gonna put your money into the show, that I was gonna give you more than what you put in back, and that's just the way I do business. So that was the foundation of the Members Brigade, and I'll, everybody that's a member, I want to say thank you today. I don't say it enough. Uh, because of you, I'm able to do this show as my full-time business. Thank you so much. All right, let's go ahead and uh, get into the, the the topic now. And again, what I'll, the today's actual title of the show is Storing Food, the Why, the How, and the What. And I want to start out with the why. Why do we bother to store food at all? And I know that some of you guys, I mean, I'm preaching to the choir a little bit, right? I don't have to tell you why we should store food, but maybe I can help you tell other people why we should store food. See... My belief, and part of why I do this show, is because I know that disasters happen. From the big, giant ones to the little, bitty ones. And they happen all the time. Somewhere, every day, at every minute, at every second, for somebody, the shit is hitting the fan. There are places where the shit has been hitting the fan for a very, very, very long time. There are places in Africa where people don't use water to wash their face because it's too valuable for drinking to waste it on something like washing your face. That's a stone-cold reality. And I know we don't live there. And I know that's a part of why we don't live there. And I know that the people that have built this country have worked their ass off so that it's not that way here, and to put systems of redundancy in so that it won't become that way here. But it is only an arrogant people, folks, that believe that it can't ever happen under any circumstances. And if not water, then maybe something really near and dear to us, food. And, you know, when I, when I look at food storage and I talk to people and I, and I, you know, I've actually turned down a lot of media. I've had a lot of different, uh T V stations, uh TV shows, radio stations contact me and say, Jack, we'd like to get you on to talk about survivalism. And I always interview them first because I didn't do that early on in my career. And I always try to see what the angle is they want to go with. And whenever they want to sensationalize food storage to make it out to be some kind of craziness, you know, or they want to send a film crew over a video, of a big pile of food, and I you know I explain to them, all my food's not in one place. Because that's one of the rules we'll talk about today. You decentralize your storage, and they say, "Well, could you?" I've actually had people say, "Could you put it all in one place so we could film it?" Get off my phone! Get off my phone! And, and, and the, you know that's why I wanted to do this show today—is thinking about some of those things because the food storage aspect of survivalism gets probably more maligned and misdirected, and lied about, and sensationalized. Uh, than anything else that we do, other than maybe guns. And I'm not even sure that maybe food storage isn't more maligned and sensationalized than guns. I guess it depends on who's doing the story and what their agenda is. If the guy's a anti-gun left-wing you know, gun hater, then that's what they're going to malign. But the general media has really turned to, whenever they talk about survivalism, sensationalizing food storage. And I just don't think that's a good idea, because I think it makes people believe that maybe food storage is actually a source of paranoia. In fact, one of the media opportunities that I turned down um, over a year and a half ago was for the Today Show. And they had this family on, and they showed all the food that they were storing. And they family gave these people some dehydr or was it? I think it was like MRE poppy seed cake. And the one reporter ate it, and it's it saying all the moisture out of my mouth. And I am thinking, yeah, you'll eat it when you are freaking hungry. But after they did the interview, and this is, I could tell this is where they were going, and this is why I re- declined it. They brought a psychologist in. And the psych, and they said to the psychologist, what's the dynamic? You know, the little chipper, you know, today's show host, well, I don't know what her name is. The, uh, she's, uh, I guess, uh, an Asian looking background to her. If you ever watch the show, you'll know which one I mean. It's like, doctor, what is, what is that play here? You know? And he's like, well, what we're seeing is we're seeing a deep seated, primitive aspect of the human mind that believes that scarcity is out there. Oh, so we're paranoid because back when we were cavemen, there wasn't food all around. Folks, this doctor needs to reevaluate things. There's a scarcity of food right now. There's people starving in the world right now. There's people going hungry in this country right now. Now, largely the people that are going hungry today are not hungry because there's a shortage of food, they're hungry for economic reasons. And they're hungry for political reasons, and they're, they're hungry for a variety of reasons. But if one thing can create a shortage of food for an individual, something else can as well. We live in a world where everything that we consume generally travels an average of about 3,000 miles or more before we get it into our stomach now. Local consumption is way down. There's a little bit of a, of an uptick in it because of the locavore movement, and that's great. But when it really comes down to it, you go to the store, you're buying lettuce from Argentina. You're buying grapes from Chile. You're buying kiwi fruit from Australia. You're buying food that comes from Europe. You're buying food that comes from the Far East. And I'm not saying that overall as a whole that's bad. But we have to step back from that and we have to realize something. The United States of America is a net importer of food in our modern day. That means that we actually produce less food than we import. So if we stopped importing and tried to live off what we grow here, We would make it. I don't want to, because here's what's happened. We've become a net importer of food on produce. The farmers in our country now grow almost completely and entirely grain. You know, soy, corn, rice, things like that. So due to that fact, we could survive, but people would be eating food that they generally don't eat. We generally export that. And then we import things like grapes and produce and and peppers and all this other stuff. So we've lost the ability to feed ourselves to a large degree in this country. And while that's going on, here's what's happening. The global population is continuing to grow. There's 6.7 billion mouths to feed now, and there'll be 7 billion soon, and there'll be 8 billion soon after that. When I was in grade school, and I'm not that old of a guy, I remember the global population getting ready to hit 4 billion and everybody making a big deal out of it. That means it's almost doubled. It's gotten damn close to doubling um, from four billion, what happens when it doubles again? What happens when it goes up by fifty percent? Because our agricultural system has has plateaued, we've kind of wrung all we can out of the land. So when it comes to like, if you're a meat eater, that hurts you too because we feed most of our meat-eating animals grains today as well, instead of the grass that they're supposed to be eating. So we have a situation where we have both the capacity of food production falling to level, and we have a a place where the global population continues to grow and place demand on something that's become more static, and that leads to shortages. But bigger than that, and, and more simplistic than that, and more plausible for most people than that, because our food comes from so many places... What does it take to disrupt that system? It takes something like a fuel shortage. It takes something like international tensions that lead to a drop in trade. It takes something like, oh, I don't know, as mundane as gas prices begin to go up during economic recovery eventually, and uh, inflation kicks in and all this new money kicks in and all of a sudden gas and diesel are trading for 5 $6 a gallon. Not peak oil, not anything sensational, just happens. Remember a couple of years ago, when gas was up like four something, diesel fuel was just a few, you know, a few pennies under five bucks. The truckers in this country came a hair's breadth from striking, not because they were being greedy and wanted more money, because they couldn't afford to run their trucks with the the fuel that high. Spend you know a week on the road and come home broke. Well, might as well stay home and be broke rather than work and be broke. You know, I guess that's a lesson that the uh, the tax-and-spend liberal hasn't figured out yet. If you take away enough of a person's profit, they just quit working because there's no point to it. And that's what happened. With, so, so let's say the truckers went on strike. Let's say they went on strike for three weeks. And we you know talked to them and came up with some subsidies, raised their pay, food prices, whatever. Whatever has to happen, we get the trucks rolling again. How long do you think it would take for food to start flowing again? First of all, the shelves would be empty in the first week, completely empty. For two weeks, there would be nothing. And then this is what people fail to understand about this new concept, it's a relatively new concept anyway, called just-in-time inventory. You can't just switch it back on, okay? You can't just turn it back on, and then it starts flowing. It's not a water hose. There's all these staging points in between, and once that system wipes out, we have food rotting because it's not being transported and going bad, That stops up bringing new food in and it might take three to four weeks to get a regular flow going again even if that's all there was. That's a month and a half. How are you going to do for a month and a half in your household right now? That's a very plausible, very possible scenario. It leads to all other types of things going on with civil disobedience and and civil disorder and rioting in in key areas. It's a relatively short-term crisis 90 days maximum? But imagine the scars it could leave on the land, and imagine the scars it could leave in your home if you're not prepared for it. These are just some of the why behind food storage. There are so many times when this could happen to you. When you lose a job and your income goes down, if you have 90 days worth of food stored, you know that old saying, i got to put food on the table? Well, guess what? For 90 days, it's taken care of. And if you use unemployment or savings or what have you or a part-time job until you find a new one and you put half of the food on the table from buying it like normal and half out of your storage, you have six months before you have to worry about having to put food on the table in the way that you normally need it. It's one less pressure in a bad situation. How many people lost jobs in the last two years? How many of those people would have been better off if while times were good, they had built up a storage of food? So from a giant global food shortage due to a strained agricultural system to a mundane trucker strike to an everyday job loss, food storage is a good thing to ensure your lifestyle. And if we travel back in time a 100 years, guess what happens? The world survivalist goes away and everybody did it. Yeah, I don't have to go back that far. I go back to the eighties with my grandmother. And every year at the end of the garden season she'd do all this canning and jarring and we'd barter for things that we didn't grow and I'd bring meat home and some you know from the from hunting deer meat and some of that would get made into like bologna that was stored down in the cellar without having to be refrigerated and and uh, she would do some canning of the deer meat. She would make barbecue and chili out of the deer meat, and we would can and jar that. Um I mean and we went if you went down to our cellar by the time we got to December, late December after deer season was over, you looked in that cellar and it was stacked with shelves and shelves and shelves of stored food. Now was she waiting for the apocalypse? Did she think the end times were near? No. It was gonna be winter and we didn't have a lot of money, and that's what we did so that we could take advantage of our harvesting from the wild, our harvesting from the garden, and our hunting, and put up a storepile of food while things were in surplus, so that as we went through the very cold winters in, in central Pennsylvania of January, February, March, waiting for spring to come so we could get some garden crops going again, and so we could get out there and start doing some fishing, and so the berries would start growing again, and yeah, we, I mean, we didn't live off the land. We went to the grocery store, but we spent so much less than many other people. But if we didn't put that storage in place for that cold winter, it wasn't going to happen. We were going to end up dead broke out of money by the time the opportunity to go out and take advantage of these other methods of food acquisition came back again. And that was the 1980s. And there's still a lot of people living that way today. And some of you are out there. And some of you are out there that you found this show and you don't even consider yourself a survivalist and you're already doing that. And you've been doing it for 20 years. Keep doing it and teach other people how. Because this show isn't really survivalism in the way that a lot of people think of it. It's about survival. And to me that makes it survivalism. But it's about survival for you to maintain things the way you want them on your own terms, in your own choice. And that's more along the lines of homesteading than survivalism. And that's a homestead whether it's in the middle of a city or way out in the boondocks, and food storage is a part of that. So let's start going into what makes an item a good candidate for food storage. The first thing is that you eat it, all right? Now, look, I know that sounds like, well, duh, Jack, listen to me. I can't tell you how many people get into this and they go out and they do things like they buy 20 cans of Spam. Now listen, some people like Spam. Some people think Spam's great. Some people eat Spam. But I've seen people buy 20 or 40 cans of it because it lasts so gone long. And it's a good protein source. And I say, do you eat Spam? And they go, well, not unless I have to. But then don't buy it. Don't buy it. Don't buy it. Especially, especially in the initial stages. When you're trying to go from your standard American household... With about seven days worth of real food in it, and about another three days of get by food all the stuff that 's in the back that you forgot about that you, you you don't you know, bought it for a recipe and it doesn 't go bad, so you left it back there, but you don 't really use it. Most people get by about ten days rationing they could probably get by for about twenty five days uh, in their house very very poorly very very hungry, very very miserable but they would you know, they wouldn't starve, is I guess my point. But in the initial stages, what you're trying to do is go from whatever level of 10 to 20 days worth of get-by you have to 30 days of solid, I'm good. And in those early stages, there is no reason to buy anything you don't regularly eat. So your number one ally in this quest is a little notebook on your counter in your kitchen. This is your, your food storage journal. And I call this your insurance against expensive charity expensive charity works like when you go buy the 50 cans of Spam and you know you've never even eaten it before and after it sits in there for a long time you think you know we should go ahead and eat some of this and you open the can of Spam and you cut it up and you look at it and you go that doesn't look very good at all and you say you know what I'm going to try to do I'm trying to make this good so you fry it up with some eggs which by the way I like it that way I actually do like Spam cooked that way but you eat it and you go this is crap I don't like this at all so, you know, uh, a food drive comes around, or you're gonna, you know, go drop old clothes off at, uh, you know, one of the charity locations, uh, or Goodwill or something like that, and you just go, we're not gonna eat this crap. And you pile all of those cans of spam, 60, 70 bucks worth, maybe more, I don't know, even know what spam, spam, uh, sells for anymore, because I really don't buy it very often, because I'm not really fond of it. Um, you know, maybe 100 bucks. Gone. And it never did anything for you. I guess while it was there, you could have broke down and ate it if you had to. But if you're in a tough situation, you got to get the kids to eat. Isn't it better to give them the things that they they want to eat anyway? And see the problem is without that food journal, you'll end up partaking in a very large amount of expensive charity. You'll end up you know giving all the stuff away to food drives. And and what happens? This is even more dangerous. Once you do that a few times, you get tired of it. You go, this food storage thing isn't for me. Well, because it didn't it didn't work for you. Cause you didn't do it right. So if you keep a food journal, this is the easiest thing in the world. This isn't about losing weight or dieting or anything complicated. All this is really about is you put this little piece of uh, notebook on your, on your counter, and every time you, your spouse, or the kids eat anything, you write down what it was. And you do that for about two to four weeks. The longer, the better. And all of a sudden, you're going to go through it, And you're going to go, okay, over a three-week period, we ate this one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine times. And if that item is storable, that is a good candidate for your storage. Eat what you store, store what you eat. But this is how you know it's what you eat. Don't adjust your diet. Don't think about it. Just mindlessly make dinner, lunch, and breakfast like you always do, marking down the items that you eat. And what you'll find sometimes is some of the items are items you use fresh. Can you find storable alternatives for those and maybe not go overboard with the storage, but start using them and incorporating them? Do that and everything gets so easy. Um, another thing that you need to look at when you're saying what makes a good candidate for storage, like this is like a, not everything has to be this, but a grade A five star candidate will last at least six months without any kind of refrigeration or cooling. So all your canned goods, most things that come in boxes, grains, even just plain old flour. I mean, you're better off with whole grain in a grinder for making breads and things like that. But flour, whole wheat or white, in a sealed container, easily six months, no problem whatsoever. And uh, so all things that will last six months without freezing and cold storage and qualify under the fact that, hey, I eat this, Good stuff. You're also looking for things with high caloric value and high nutritive value. Now, you have to be careful with the high calorie value. And the reason you have to do that is because if you're eating it every day, right, and it's got high caloric value, then you you get Dunlap's disease, where your belly Dunlap's over your belt. And, uh, you know, we try to keep that to a minimum as best we can. There's a lot of good stuff to eat out there, and I'm not skinny by any means, but I also can still make it up, you know, a seven mile uphill hike up into the mountains, uh, without sucking a lot of wind, because I haven't really done lapped, I've just done. Right? (laughs) Done, done lifted over, but not lapped over. And, uh, if you eat high caloric food all the time, that can become a problem. But when you're in a storage mode, the more caloric value that your stored food has, the longer you can ration it and the longer you can make it last. The other side, though, is high nutritive value. So there are things out there like you can go out there and grow spinach. And you could grow spinach from the time the, the, the snow leaves the ground until it gets too hot for it. And you can dehydrate spinach into spinach flakes and you can take to- I mean, a mountain of spinach and, and, and dry it down into a, a single coffee can. And that has like crap for caloric value. You know, there's not really a lot of caloric value in there. But it's like growing your own multivitamin. There is so much nutritive value there. Even just a little bit of it added into something, you know, like let's say some cheese that you're making like a cheese dip. And and you got high calories and high fat. And that's a good comfort food. It's a good, uh, it's a good survival food uh like a dehydrated cheese that stores well that you can make a mix with, but then I turbocharge it by adding those spinach flakes to it. It tastes good and I get nutritive value. It's important that we balance those two things. We also want things that are multi purpose, things that we can do a lot of things with. And well that really is not that critical because most things are multi purpose. We just need to learn how to make a multi purpose. Here's what I mean. If you store a bunch of pasta and a bunch of tomato sauce, that's fine. Uh, especially if you sort like, jarred or canned tomato sauce that has some meat in it, and you, so you got some fat in the pasta, you got some fat from the meat in the sauce, you've got nutritive value from the vegetables in the sauce, you've got whole wheat, so you've got nutritive value uh, in your pasta, especially if you do whole wheat pasta, so that's great, and you're going to survive on it, but after about six weeks of eating spaghetti every night, you're going to get bored. Maybe you're getting bored about six days. Me, I'm going to get bored about uh, three. But the pasta is multi-purpose, I can take the pasta and I can use cheese powder and I can make macaroni and cheese. It's very different than, than, uh, you know, tomato sauce, the spaghetti. And there's a lot of other things I can do with noodles if I teach myself how to do them. I can do Asian slanted cooking and things like that by having the right uh, seasonings, the right sauces, the right components, the right things to cook with, the right dehydrated vegetables, the right dehydrated spices and herbs. I can do all kinds of things with something like pasta. And I can do the same thing with beans. So I can take two very bland overall components, long-term cheap storage pasta and beans, and I can do Hundreds of different things with them, if I cook with them today and learn how. So that during a hard time, I can keep my family doing well. You also want stuff that's easy to divide and barter. And most things are easy to divide and barter. You just need to think about that in advance so that you can have a methodology for doing that. So in a long-term crisis, there may be a neighbor that says, hey, I need some food. And you say, well, what do you got? Because I'm not just going to give it to you. That's one way to control, like, the free lunch syndrome, is if you're going to help somebody, even if you don't really need anything, barter with them. So that they don't get the idea that I can just go over and get It's not like a store. You know, or I can just go get something for free whenever I want from the government. Um, that You know, the House isn't a welfare cheese line. So, you say, well, I don't, I don't have much, but I can do this. What do you got? What do you give me for it? And, I mean, if the crisis is over, I might even go give it back. But it's good to think about barter in advance. It really is. I also want to talk about methods for finding room to store your food. This is a common problem. I get a lot of questions about it. I've run out of room. I've run out of room. The first thing you need to do is you need to maximize your pantry into a rotational model. You really need to make sure that your pantry is being utilized space efficiently, whatever you have for a pantry and that you're doing things like you know putting the the oldest food in the front and the, and the newest food to the rear and rotating it just like a grocery store get that pantry running the way a pantry's designed to run a pantry's not designed To have just everything in the world you can think of, 99 varieties, thrown in there, strewn about. The pantry was designed to have the key items that you use most often in quantity so that they can be utilized as necessary and replenished before they run out. That is actually the purpose of a pantry. And I think most Americans and most modern people in the world today have no idea that that's the case. The entire purpose of a pantry is for food storage. Right? And most Americans just shove everything in there. Seven different kinds of crackers and a you know bags of stuff sealed up and pushed back in the corner. They don't know what's in there. The first thing is to make the pantry efficient. The next is to start looking for containers for overflow. And your three big ones are beans, buckets, and boxes. I'm not, sorry, buckets, bins, and boxes. Boxes being the least favorable because they're cardboard and they're susceptible to things like rodent damage. But if what you're storing in there is canned goods, but a cardboard box is fine. I have yet to see the rat that can chew through a soup can. If you find one, kill it quick because I don't want to see it. That's bad news. So boxes are for the things that are stored in uh, some type of container that's going to protect them. Bins and buckets, you can store things that need a little bit of extra protection. I have found that it is almost impossible from what I can see from... Uh, uh, I was used to store sunflower seeds in in a garbage can. that was basically made out of the same material of like a rubber-made tub in my uh, my storage shed. And I would take that sunflower seed out and feed the birds and the squirrels with it so I could watch them while I'm talking to you out my window. And occasionally, the feeders would go empty and I would forget that I needed to feed the feeder, fill the feeders. And the squirrel, which is much like a rat, figured out that since I keep the window open in the shed except for the screen, that he could chew a hole in the screen and get in there and see what was in there. And then he found the bucket, I guess with his nose, and he chewed right through the Rubbermaid garbage can. I then said, okay, this is an interesting experiment, and I put the material into a five-gallon bucket, and he was not able to chew through the five-gallon bucket. I'm not saying nothing could ever chew through the five-gallon bucket. I'm telling you, he went through the Rubbermaid container like butter, and he didn't get through the five-gallon bucket. So... Again, the more susceptible stored items are to rodents, the more secure you need to be with your storage container. One of the best things I found for absolute protection of items is a stainless steel garbage can. You throw your stuff in there, you put that lid on, and I could be Robo Rat to get in there. It is important to understand something. When you're storing your food, you're storing your wealth. It's no different than money in the bank. It actually is because it has more value to you in a hard time than money in the bank. You have to go get in exchange for food when you may not be able to. But it is wealth, and you need to think about it like money. You wouldn't take money and just shove it under your couch with no accountability. How much You wouldn't do it with that? like just take a big wad of bills and shove it under your couch and go, well, if I ever need money, I'll go under and get some. You'd want to know how much money there is? And it sure probably wouldn't be under your couch. And if it was, it would be maybe in a drop safe under your couch. You would protect it. You have to look at your food the same way. You're going to rely on this. Now, coming back to a Rubbermaid tub that you filled up with rice, beans, and pasta, and, and, and finding out that rats have basically made a nest in it and ruined it for you, that's a pretty big hit to take. So you need to think about this in advance and make sure that you're using good storage materials that will protect your investment. Um, next, make sure you utilize wasted space. This includes things like under your bed. Um, the things that like we buy for college students, you know, that lift their bed up another couple inches. Great idea. Rubbermaid tubs slid under the bed. You probably don't have to worry about rodent damage there. You got, you know, I mean, hopefully you don't have to worry about rodent damage under your bed. If you do, I feel bad for you. You need to figure out how to stop that. But you get the low-profile Rubbermaid tubs and fill those up with food. You can build a little shelving system, and you can come in from both sides of the bed. You'd be surprised at how much food can be stored under a bed, even in an apartment, for instance. So make sure you're utilizing wasted space. Make sure you're making wasted space efficient. Racks, shelving... Anything you can do to improve efficiency and organization will maximize how much you can store. And another thing to think about is building mini root cellars. I'm going to go back to the colony again because this just happened. Uh, this chick from Montana that should have known better, she's a logger, um, took their fish head, they made fish head soup with some fish they borrowed for her, And they had a lot of it left over. And they put it in a cooler and she dug a hole for a mini root cellar. And uh, it was just deep enough to get the top of the cooler under the ground. And then she threw like a, a piece of metal over top of it and covered it with debris. And guess what? It went bad. It went rancid and it was full of ants. because The food wasn't sealed up and the hole wasn't deep enough. You need a minimum, this is a bare minimum of about two inches of earthen cover over top of whatever you're burying. And you're better off with about a foot. And uh, that, that's what it really takes. But you can build mini root cellars. There's a lot of little articles online about them. And they're not going to keep food that belongs in the refrigerator safe. But food that would be okay at room temperature but lasts longer in a cool environment, good candidate for it. And items that would be fine at room temperature for three months may be fine in a mini root cellar for six months or more. If you, if, you like, if you buy like Mountain House or Providing Pantry, any of the commercially prepared storable foods, and you look at their storage life, you'll see even though they're designed for long-term storage, 10, some of them 20 years, there's a direct correlation between storage temperature and storage length. So anything you do to reduce temperature generally increases the, uh, the longevity of the food that you're storing. I also want you to talk to you about two very important considerations. One is making sure that your food gets rotated. If you've put a whole bunch of food under your bed, please label all your bins so you know what's in each one. And when you pull that can of Rotel t- uh, tomatoes, or wolf chili, or chicken soup, or whatever it is, box of cheese macaroni, whatever, Hamburger, I don't care what it is. You pull it out of your pantry. You pull the entire stack in your pantry forward one unit. You write down on your, your grocery list one box of, right, or two if you're doing what's called copy canning, which means you're increasing your supply still. But if you say you're stabilized, one box of cheeseburger, macaroni, hamburger, helper, which I think is god awful by the way. But if that's what you eat, that's what you eat. Um, you don't go to the store. Bring the box home and put it in your pantry. You go immediately upstairs, pull out the bin where you keep that item, or at your in your garage wherever you keep the item. Pull that item out, put the bin back in. You know, put that in your pantry, and when you come home from the grocery store, restock the bin. You start doing that, and everything starts to flow like a system. And here's what happens. This is probably one of the biggest reasons for doing this. The convenience becomes amazing. You know what never happens? Boy, I'd like to have so-and-so tonight, but we're out of this and this. I'm either going to have to make something else or go to the store. That just goes away. It's like having a grocery store in your house. It's like having a convenience store in your house. That's what happens when you practice this religiously and you get it running in an efficient manner. The other thing I want to talk about today is decentralized storage. As you go past the month, you're going to have a fairly large volume of food. And it's very easy, very easy to think, well, I have a cellar. I could just put all the food right here. Now, look, if you have a great space like that, I'm not saying not to use it. But I am saying put together four or five bins of food. Make sure you have an organizational structure in place so you know where they are and you know where to go get them. And don't put like all of them as beans. Do some of like standard rotations, some long-term storage, some rotations maybe not as often. Get a variance. Make sure that those bins maybe have 30 days' worth of food in them that you could use just the bins. And put them in different rooms of your home. One under the kid's bed, one under your bed, one in the back of the closet. Put them in places where they're easy to get to so you can keep your rotation going on but decentralize it. As you start to move long-term storage, past two to three months... Right, and you start to bring in things like mountain house, providing pantry, and you start to bring in maybe some MREs and things like that that can go long-term storage, they can be kind of put away a little further where because you, you're not going to be using them as often. Maybe once in a while you pull one out just to become acclimated to it or to decide whether or not you want to order more of it if you ever have to rely on it. But this is stuff that can store five, ten years. So it doesn't have to be in that true rotational, but don't put that all in one place. There's there's some big reasons for this. This is so important. One, if you ever get into a long-term shit at the fam where people do try to steal what you have, if they breach your centralized storage, they can get everything. And I know that might sound a little paranoid, but it can happen. But that's just, that's the extreme reason. Let's say there's a big storm, type of disaster you prepare for, and your house is damaged, but not so damaged you have to leave, or even if you do have to leave, you're going to take what you have with you. Or you could live in part of your house. But let's say a large tree collapses through the kitchen area of your home, massively damages the kitchen, crushes everything, rain comes through, the kitchen's flooded, and everything in the kitchen area and maybe the downstairs bathroom area is just destroyed. It's just ruined. If that's where all your food was, now you have nothing. Now all your preps go for nothing. And that's a very common event. There's tornadic storms that tear attics off. If all your food was in your attic, it went away with the tornado. right? So basements are great. And that's probably where the bulk of your storage, especially in peacetime, should be. right? Is down there because it's cool. It's a perfect environment. But what I'm saying is always have some decentralized storage because you never know what's going to happen. And if we ever get into a really bad situation, immediately begin to break your, have a plan to break your food into caches throughout your house. And maybe some outside. Maybe some hidden under a deck. Maybe some in an out building or a shed. Good idea now. Necessity at a time of hostility. And From yesterday, I'll bring in that I would not do this during a relatively safe period of time. But if there is ever a bad time, use the empty containers from the food as you utilize it to create decoy storage at the most likely place that you'll be breached. And if somebody does manage to breach and grab your stuff, they leave with nothing but a box of rocks. That might sound kind of mean, but hey, somebody's trying to steal from you. It's better they run away and think they have food with a box of rocks and go, these these people are crazy and they don't have any food anymore. than you put a bullet in their head. So make sure you think about that important consideration. Decentralizing storage, security of your food and your commodity. Understand you need to know its inventory, how much you have, where it is, and have an organizational structure around it. You have to treat your food like it's money. Right, You might have a jar you just throw change into. But when it comes to real money, cash, I bet you know how much is in your bank account, how much is in your check account, how much you owe that credit card company, that credit card you shouldn't even have anymore, if you've been listening to this show. I bet you if you have more than $100 in the house, you know where it is and how much of it there is. I'm just saying treat your food the same way. It costs you hundreds of dollars to buy it every month, doesn't it? Does it deserve any less respect than something like cash, or gold, or silver? It's another piece of your wealth. It's another reason, when I've been asked by the media, another reason I've said no to let's put it all in one place and take a picture of it. I feel like that would be like me putting all my money, a big stack of money, and go, this is how much money I have stored. There's an arrogance and a stupidness to that. So that's why I've never allowed that. That's why I never will allow that. That's why you don't see me on YouTube going, hey, look at all my stored food. You see me with one bin or one bucket going, this is how you put it together. Because you don't want to advertise that. You don't want it sensationalized. And there is a to me, it is flaunting your wealth. Because I see my food as part of my wealth. I want you to do that as well. Let's talk a little bit as we wrap up today about what I call rolling your own. Making your own food for long-term storage. I'm not going to talk about gardening and hunting and foraging today, uh, we'll probably do a show about that in the near future cause I love that subject. But I'm going to talk about what to do with food because I don't care whether you go to a grocery store when they have a big sale on green beans. I don't care whether you go to a farmer's market when they're almost throwing peppers at people because the end of the season and they have too many. I don't care if you go out in the woods and pick a whole bunch of blueberries or strawberries, uh, wild and blackberries. I don't care if you go out and shoot a couple deer and bring the meat home. I don't care if you go down to the grocery store, talk to the meat cutter and buy a side of beef. At a discount. I don't care how you get food. There's a million ways right now, while times are good, to get food in excess and in bulk cheap. The problem with it is, you can't eat a side of beef in a day, right? Not unless you're bringing a you know a bunch of rednecks like me over for a barbecue. We could probably knock a pretty good chunk out of a side of beef that way for you. But for your family, a side of beef is months worth of meat. And if we're going to do things like that, we have to look at ways to store our food outside of the conventional freezer. Let me talk a little bit about freezing before we go forward with the rest of them. Freezing has a place. I have a chest freezer and a standard side-by-side refrigerator freezer, and both of them stay very, very full. At any time that they begin to get depleted, they get filled up with bottles of water and ice because it's more efficient. If the freezer fails, it'll last longer, uh, and it costs less money to keep a full freezer cold than it keeps uh, to keep a half full freezer cold. So freezing has a place. It just has a place with some limitations. One, you should use food out of your freezer before you use food out of uh, standard, uh, you know, long term storage methods. So, if you have frozen green beans and canned green beans, use the frozen green beans first. When they run out, go to the can. Now, once in a while, you need to use the canned ones anyway. Canned food, one year storage is pretty good on vegetables. Two years, it's, yeah, you're, you're pushing it. And the problem with after two years is it gets very mushy, and even if it tastes okay, it loses so much of its nutritive value, it's not really valuable anymore. So you need to be using those canned goods, but you need to really be using the stuff in the freezer. If you have a power failure that's going to last a long time, you immediately need to begin to consume everything out of that refrigerator and freezer, cook it or prepare it or eat it as fast as you can, and make sure that becomes the priority for first consumption. And you could do things like have a whole bunch of meat frozen, and if you're going to lose it, you pull it out and you start making jerky and or biltong out of it, which we'll get to in a second. You can have a lot of vegetables in there, and maybe you can't eat them all, but you pull them out and since they've been blanched to be frozen, great candidate for dehydration now, if you don't have electricity, right, you might have to use solar dehydration, but you can dry the vegetables in other words, you can you can so you pick anything in there that can be converted to a storable without energy or without a lot of energy and do it very quickly. Cooking meat alone extends its storage life. So let's go through some of the things that you can do to kind of roll your own and just understand that they also apply to items that might be in your freezer at the onset of a disaster. The the first method that I I, want to talk about for for rolling your own is drying and dehydration. Um, It has become, especially since finding Tammy Gangloff's channel on YouTube, Dehydrate a Store, my go-to method of storage for, for just about every vegetable and fruit that I can get my hands on. Uh, I find that when you dehydrate most vegetables and fruit, uh, rehydrated for cooking, they're far superior than canning. Most. Dehydrated green beans I am not in love with, folks. I'll tell you right now. Um, I've gone to taking green beans and seeing that there's usually most of my beans that I grow now. I see more value in letting them mature and s- saving them as a shell dry bean than saving them as a green bean. And if I do save them, uh, we can them. Because a-, a canned green bean is far superior to a dehydrated green bean to me. I know the dehydrated one has more nutritive value, but they just don't work out for me. Everything else, squash, corn, tomatoes, um, I've done potatoes, I've done peas, I've done carrots, I've... Uh, I've even tried, I'm trying tomatillos right now. You might think, what would you do with a a dehydrated tomatillo? Take some dehydrated tomatillos, some dehydrated tomato, some dehydrated garlic, some dehydrated onion, some dehydrated cilantro, and guess what you got when you rehydrate it all together in one place? Badass salsa. Maybe throw a little bit of dehydrated corn in there. So tomatillos are, are great for salsa. So that's why I'm dehydrating them. Here's the things I like about dehydration. Low energy consumption. Even if you use an electronic dehydrator like an Excalibur. And here's what I just thought of now. I'm going to do this. This is going to be the next YouTube video. I'm going to get one of my PowerDome EXs, which is a big product that I recommend on Amazon.com. They're about 100 bucks, backup power supply. And I am going to fully charge it. I'm going to plug my Excalibur into it. And I'm just going to turn it on and see how long I can run an Excalibur with a PowerDome EX. I don't even know how practical that is, but that sounds interesting. My point is that I can run a a dehydrator with alternative energy, like a small solar system and a battery bank, a hell of a lot better and a hell of a lot longer than I can a deep freezer. So as long as I can generate enough power to run that dehydrator on occasion, during a long-term crisis, any food that I get, I can continue to use that uh, as long as I can create some level of electricity. And I don't need electricity. Basically, I need Bright sunshine and a screen to dehydrate vegetables. Not the most efficient way, or I can build a solar dehydrator. And even if I don't have one, if I know how to build one and I can salvage the materials, I can create one anytime I want. So dehydration has become my go-to. And you can even use dehydration with things like fish. If you take a fish and you fillet both sides of it, leave it together at the tail, and then score the meat. And if it's relatively, now if there's a humid environment, this isn't going to work. But if you hang that open like that and let that dry out, even without smoking, you get a long preservation of fish. Fish dries very, very efficiently that way. Add a little bit of salt and you increase that effect. So keep salt on hand. Smoke it with some salt like that and you get... A jerky that will last uh, probably longer than it, than it needs to because you'll eat it because it tastes good and you, you need food, right? So dehydration, way, way up at the top. The next one is smoking. I'm a huge fan of smoking. I have a side box smoker uh, for doing things like briskets and ribs and all, and I, do a lot, I try to do as much cold smoking as I, as I can. It takes a lot of discipline to get a side box smoker to truly cold smoke, but I do a lot of cold smoking with fish. Smoked fish stores amazingly, and it tastes great. And uh, when we I'm fi- just haven't done it here because I don't think it's worth it. When we finally move in January, woohoo! We're gonna get to move for real. My wife's absolutely fully on board. Finally, I'm gonna get to move to Arkansas, folks. I am so stoked. If you can't tell about this, I am being the best husband in the world since getting that news. Um, you know, I gave her an extra year, and 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 she made good on it and said we'll do it. So uh, anyway, when we move, I'm gonna build a full scale smokehouse, and I mean. That's one of the greatest methods of meat preservation. And you can do things with a smokehouse if you learn more that are more of meat-curing technologies, like making hams and bacons and things like that. And we usually think of curing a ham as something we do with pork. You can cure a ham with venison, folks. Um, there's a guy down the road for me down in Mansfield that every year I'll take two of the back legs of a deer that I'll shoot down to him, and I just i don't have him do my butchering at all because I think he's expensive for that um but i'll ham hand him two deer hams and say, "Hey, ham these up for me, and I get them back and they are amazing they don't taste anything like a pork ham, really they have that hamish flavor, but it's you know it's venison it's not pork so the curing process that can be done. Uh, as, as a meat curing in combination with smoking can be done with many different types of meat uh, some of the most amazing things I've ever done with smoking is smoking ducks smoking dove if you smoke dove just like grilling you you wrap it in bacon to keep it from getting too dry uh, smoked rabbit is like God made it for you it really is chicken, I, I like to smoke chicken I always split chicken in half if I smoke it uh, because I get a more efficient uh smoking and I get, you know, get the red out of the meat. Because you don't want red chicken meat, pink chicken meat. You, you know that. that You get that out a lot quicker. But smoked rabbit and smoked squirrel are just amazing. And I've talked about how when I was a kid I used to go shoot groundhogs. And uh I used to eat them. And people think that's kind of nasty to eat a groundhog. Hey, it's meat, you know. And uh, what I would usually do with a groundhog is I would skin it so that basically you have the back legs and the backstrap up to about the ribs, and cut it off. So you've got that, you know, two quarters of the meat basically together. Hang that up and smoke it if it's a young one. And that's pretty gone amazing, too. Um, with older, larger animals, you had to pressure cook them if you were going to eat them, because they just were too dadgong tough, or they needed to be slow-cooked or something like that. But the young ones smoked... You know, if and it was always kind of like, you know, we'd gone fishing, we had a bunch of trout we were going to smoke up, and I'd just gone out and popped a groundhog, and hey, throw it in there and see what happens. And uh, even my grandfather, who just thought, what the hell's wrong with you? We're not that freaking hungry. What are you going to smoke a skunk next? That was what he said. But then when he ate he said, well, that's pretty damn gone good, you know? So um, you can get creative with smoking. Uh, I also want to talk a little bit about canning. I have... Used to think it was the bee's knees, man. It was, it was the stuff, you know. That was my grandmother was always canning. And, you know, it, it didn't matter if she was pickling or making jelly or straight up canning. It's still all canning because in the end you're using, you know, steam, pressure, or a hot water bath and creating a seal and sealing up the jars and putting them down. So it doesn't matter if you're doing jelly, you're still canning, right? It doesn't matter if you're making chow chow, it's canning. doesn't matter if you're making dill pickles or sweet pickles, it's canning. So I thought canning was great, and for some things it is, especially jellies, preserves, and, and, and pickled items like chow chow. And if you want to get on my good side, folks, if you make chow chow relish, send me a jar of chow chow relish. I am a chow chow fiend. By the way, Zach and Jen, you guys know who you are. You just sent me a jar of honey. You are on my good side forever. If you need anything, now is the time to ask. Thank you so much for sending me that. But chow chow relish is a huge thing for me. So that kind of moves into pickling and fermenting. Because a lot of the pickling and fermenting ends up canned. But those are two really different technologies, especially pickling. You can make pickles, folks, without canning. You just can't store it very well without refrigeration. But you can put together a basic pickling brine, chop up some vegetables, uh like especially cucumbers especially a lighter brine not as as deep of a pickling make a couple of containers of that put that in the refrigerator wait a week in fact, you know, with with thin slicing and all, I do it with uh, with cucumbers out of the garden. You basically get the product in, in an hour. It's pretty daggone good. And The longer you leave it, the more it marinates together. Throw some garlic and maybe some dill or whatever you want to do to enhance that. You put a few jars of that in the refrigerator, and it'll keep for damn near ever in the refrigerator, even if you don't can it because of the high acid content of the vinegar. Uh, you can make things like sauerkraut out of cabbage, and that keeps. You know, I've seen that kept in a bin in a in a cool barn. Um So these are technologies I can't go deep into today, but if you learn them, they can all be utilized to extend your food storage with whatever food you can come up with, whether it's emergency procedures because the food was in the freezer and can't be anymore, or because you've gone out purchased it in bulk. The last one is making jerky and making biltong, two entirely different ways to preserve meat. Jerky is either smoked or dried in the sun, the meat is sliced thin. And it uses mostly salt to cure it. A lot of people put salt and pepper on their jerky, and some people marinate it in anything from teriyaki sauce to Worcestershire to, you know, everybody has their own recipe. Uh, And Biltong also uses salt to dry meat, and that's where the similarities end. When you make Biltong, I'm gonna do my Biltong recipe again for you. First of all, stop searching the internet to figure out how to build a biltong box unless you live in a place where you have no air conditioning and you have high humidity. Because you don't need a box, you don't need a light bulb, you don't need any of that to make biltong. It's been made for thousands of years by the Bush people in South Africa and they've got it perfected. Here's what you need. Salt, pepper, coriander, vinegar, and uh, apple cider vinegar to me is the best. You don't need a lot of vinegar. Biltong versus jerky. Jerky is just drying the meat out. Biltong is basically a method of dry pickling, and it lasts forever. It's almost like mummifying the meat in a, in a way. And if you ever hold on to a piece of it, you'll understand because you can have a piece of biltong that you know is it was started out as like two or three inches thick, and it's down to a half inch thick, and it still looks like something that should be relatively heavy. If you wrap that much jerky in a bundle, it would be heavy. If you pick the biltong up, it's just got this light feeling to it. It is almost a mummification process. You take your vinegar and basically you sprinkle it, or the best thing is a spray bottle, I know they didn't have that in the bush, but you sprinkle the meat with vinegar, you coat it with salt, not cake it, but coat it with salt. I like to use like a, a coarse salt, not a fine salt. Fine salt you tend to, like from your salt shaker you tend to use too much. You can't see it, so you think you don't have it you keep going, right? Uh, you get a coarse salt like uh, sea salt or something like that. It comes in a container. You know, you don't have to go out and buy rock salt to do this with. And uh, just make sure that all the meat gets some salt on it. Black pepper, good coating of black pepper, good coating of ground coriander. you got to grind it or buy the ground coriander. Take that, mix it up in a bin, put it in the refrigerator overnight. Again, I know they didn't have a refrigerator in South Africa. Not absolutely necessary. You just get a better result. The next day, pull it out of the refrigerator and hang it up somewhere. The way I do that is I hang a string across my office, sometimes two or three, and I get paper clips. Take the paper clip and undo it so it looks like an S-hook. One hook in the meat, one hook over the rope. I tie a bunch of knots in the rope to keep the meat from touching each other, and I leave it hang. And for about a week and a half, the dogs walk into the office and just look up and go, God, I wish I had a ladder, you know? (laughs) And it dries out. And usually I end up eating some of it as it's drying. And you find out that you kind of, as a human being, meat that's not really cooked is actually something you kind of like. Two days into it, maybe, I'm nibbling on some of it, and hopefully 80% of the meat processed gets through the other side. When it gets dry enough to where you can bend it and it breaks, it's done. You can let it continue to dry completely out, or you can keep it from drying out any further and leave the center a little bit moist simply by putting it in an airtight environment. A uh, jar, a Ziploc bag, anything like that will stop it. I like my build time to have a little bit of wetness in it. Once it's done that way, well, you pick it up, gnaw it, and eat it like jerky if you want to. You can slice it up and put it in and cook food with it. It is probably the most versatile uh, meat product out there. The last way to preserve meat is through the process of making pemmican, which uses berries and maybe some nuts and ground meat and tallow and fat. And one of the big things missing from jerky and biltong is fat. So pemmican is something I can't go in today. We've already gone along with the show for today, so I want to wrap up. But pemmican is another thing for you to look into because it is the ultimate survival food because it has everything you need in one small block, and it lasts damn near forever. So maybe I'll do a video someday on making pemmican. But as I'm wrapping up today, what I want to end with is... If if maybe somebody turns you on to this show, if, if this is not, you know, your typical thing, this modern survivalism thing and these homesteading things, and, and you're wondering if, you know, you made it through the show, maybe I was entertaining enough to get you through it, but you're thinking, is this really for me? Should I be storing food? Does this make sense? I want to kind of end with a plea to you. Do you understand that storing food is probably the most rational thing a human being can do? There's so many things that we collect and keep that are useless, um... My sister-in-law, and I love her, and I'm not putting her down for this, she's just the first example that comes to my mind, likes cherished teddies. and She has this glass case with hundreds and hundreds of cherished teddies, And I actually like that because when we need to get her something and we're not sure what to get her, we just get her the newest cherished teddy and she's happy, right? So good thing all around. But you can't eat them. They're not really going to be ever worth that much money. I don't care what the collectors say. that There's only a market for something collectible as long as somebody wants to collect it and as long as it's in need and it's in short supply. There's probably more money invested in there than she would ever get back if she sold them. You can't eat them and you sure as hell won't be able to barter for them. I'm not putting it down. That's just an example. And everywhere you go, there's people that collect things. My wife collects freaking Barbie dolls, right? And she's talked about getting rid of them, but yet they are still here. And I don't want her to get rid of them. She just talks about it, and it doesn't happen. She holds on to them. Um, I usually, When I was a kid, I used to collect baseball cards. And is there some monetary value there? Yeah, but I had a whole bunch of them that were worthless. Um, there's all kinds of things that we collect and we put aside if we look at all of them whether they're worth money or not whether they give us pleasure or they're just old junk items that we don't get rid of there's a fundamental reality that we probably don't need them tomorrow or the next day or the day after that you will eat breakfast tomorrow morning when you get up you'll probably eat something around lunchtime and you'll eat something at dinner dinnertime and you'll probably have a few snacks and you're probably going to do this for the rest of your life unless you end up at some point laying in a bed wishing someone would pull the plug for you because you're eating through a tube and you have no chance of recovery. Up until that point, or until they put you in a box and lower you in the ground or pitch you off a boat or however you want to go out in a you know, ball of flame, however it is that you want to leave this place as far as your body goes when you're done, up until that point, each and every day, you're going to eat. Storing something you're going to use is not paranoia, it's planning. And understanding that if you have something that is so critical that you need it every single day of your life to live, to have it in surplus is not paranoia, no matter what that doctor says. And to believe that something that's that critical should be stored in a quantity greater than seven days is not paranoia. It is the most rational thing we can do in our world today. We live in a world where shortages can and will happen. We live in a world where threats can and do occur. And when they happen, you know what happens? All the people they don't happen to, they go, help us. Help us. Food, medical supplies, water, comfort items. Please send these. These people need this. And it's very easy for us to try to stay comfortable in our little world to believe that we'll never be the person... Dirty, cold, wet, and miserable with the camera on us when some celebrity that doesn't give a damn about you, by the way, uses it for a photo op. But you're a human being. You breathe, you eat, you drink, you live, you die like every other human out there. And intrinsic to your life is the ability to feed yourself. And if you're a parent, you have a responsibility to store food. Because your responsibility is to feed your kids. And if you're a husband or a wife and your spouse isn't on board with this, you do it anyway. You might do it in some moderation until you win them over, but you do it because you're responsible to make sure that that family, whether it's you and some kids or just you and your spouse, to make sure that you don't go hungry in a bad situation. This is the way forward for people that want to make sure they can be okay tomorrow. And here's the big thing I want to end with today. I read a quote on somebody's blog a long time ago. I don't remember which one it was. It was like the Down in the Hill Survival blog or something like that. And he was talking about food stores. He said, I want you to understand that as long as you have some food, getting more is easy. But if you're out of food, getting food becomes very, very difficult As long as you have some, you can think, you can be rational, you can take your time, you can evaluate resources, and you can determine a path to getting more. The day you're out and the need to get food today, not tomorrow, becomes critical. Everything changes. Storing food puts you into the first position rather than the second one. That's a much better place to be. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life when times get tough or even if they know.